The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Well, it's time to open God's Word together. Let me encourage you to take your Bible and open with us uh, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. This morning we return to Matthew's Gospel and the words of the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And it has been more than seven weeks Uh, since we were last together in this opening section of the Sermon on the Mount called the Beatitudes. So do turn with us to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, whatever Bible you have, open together. And uh, the opening section of the Sermon on the Mount is called the Beatitudes. And in the Beatitudes, Jesus is answering the question, who is it that is truly blessed by God? Who is it that is truly blessed by God? By God, or also answering the question, who is it that is truly a citizen of the kingdom of Jesus, who is a true Christian, in other words? Uh, and uh, in the past seven weeks, since we were last in the Beatitudes, a number of you have commented on the fact that going through these Beatitudes slowly, one at a time, has helped you, and it certainly helped me, to realize just how much Jesus is actually saying here in these very short uh, little sentences called the Beatitudes, how deeply significant they really are, how filled with spiritual meaning, and how challenging they really are to us as well. Uh, Some of you have even uh, literally said, it feels like Jesus is taking us to the woodshed in the Beatitudes in some sense, and if you feel that, that's definitely the case in one sense, but I hope it's also the case that having disciplined us and correcting us, he also leads us to the gospel of his grace so that we can grow and we can change and we can be a more sincere disciple of himself. So I'm hopeful that that same thing is going to happen this morning as we look to the fifth beatitude in in verse 7 and uh, we'll find Jesus challenging us, correcting us, but also leading us to his grace as well, But before we do that, we need the, the help of God's Spirit to understand the Word, and uh, I certainly need God's help to, to preach it, and so let us pause as we pray and ask God's help. Well, Lord God, we, we bow this morning thankful that you have brought us here and assembled us together to lift our voices in praise to you, to lift our voices in prayer, but, but now, Lord, our, our voices are silenced to give priority to your voice. Lord, we want to hear your word to us. And so come now, we pray, in the power of your spirit to illuminate our minds and give us understanding of the words that your son speaks to us. And as he has come to establish this glorious kingdom, your kingdom, we pray, Father, that you would give us aid to understand and to grow this morning. And so come and bless the reading and hearing and proclamation of your word this morning, we ask. In the name of Christ our Lord, amen. And now, friends, let us hear God's word from Matthew in chapter 5 through verse 7. This is the word of God. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. And uh, we'll stay here in Matthew 5 this morning, but we'll also be looking at a a few parables as well. So I'd encourage you to keep your Bible uh, open and active as we see what God speaks to us here. Uh, This past week, I was uh, reading in preparation. I came across uh, a story, and I want to share part of that story with you. It's it's a story uh, written by someone, a name that might be very familiar to you, others perhaps maybe not so familiar, uh, written by Corey Ten Boom. If you're not familiar with that name, Corey Ten Boom is associated with the history of World War II and the particular history of the Holocaust, those horrific events perpetrated against the Jewish people by Nazi Germany during World War II. Uh, you, you may or may not know that Corey was herself actually not Jewish, and I was pleased to learn that she was actually a Dutch Reformed Christian, interestingly. Nevertheless, she and her other family members helped uh, many Jews escape the persecution of the Holocaust by hiding them in their home. Uh, they were actually eventually caught, arrested, and sent to the concentration camp called Ravensbrück, Uh, where Corey survived the concentration camp, but her sister, among other family members and friends, did not. Corey Ten Boom went on to live to be 91 years old and write an autobiography called The Hiding Place. And in that, she tells this story that I want to share with you. At one point, she writes about uh, post-World War II, going around Germany and speaking in churches and, and sharing her story after the war. And she tells about this one particular instance. She writes... It was a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door at the processing center at Ravensbrück. This was the first time I had seen one of my tormentors since being released, and suddenly it was all there fresh again, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing on the floor, the pain of my sister's face. This man came up to me, as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing, saying, how grateful I am for your message. He said, to think that as you say, Jesus has washed even my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had spoken so often to the people about the need to forgive, held my hand tightly at my side. Angry and vengeful thoughts boiled through me, And I remembered his sins against me and my dead sister. Uh, I'm going to share the rest of the story with you a little bit later on. But I share that part of it because it speaks to a tension, right, that we all know about. A tension not experienced maybe so palpably as Corey Ten Boom here in this illustration. But a tension that exists between our natural impulses and the call of the Lord Jesus. The tension that exists between our impulses naturally within our flesh to anger and vengeance and retribution and the words of Jesus here in verse 7. So just to go back to the Beatitudes in general here, if you scan back over the Beatitudes, what we've been seeing so far in verses 3 to 6 is that Jesus is telling us that in order to be true citizens of his kingdom, then we must be those who are poor in spirit, verse 3, those who, verse 4, mourn over our sins and as a result produce meekness in us before God 
and fills us with a desperation in verse 6 for righteousness to hunger and thirst for righteousness because we have seen through Jesus' words just how much we do not possess within ourselves when it comes <coughs> to righteousness. We realize what we do not have and we realize what we so desperately need and what we need is not found within ourselves. What we need is found within Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus is doing in these first four Beatitudes in verses three, four, five, and six is telling you how deeply you depend upon God. How deeply we all depend upon God to meet the needs that we so desperately have. And then, following those first four Beatitudes, where Jesus is, as it were, emptying us of all self-reliance and self-righteousness and pride, after he empties us, he then says, Now, let me show you what your dependence upon God looks like when it works itself out in terms of your character. You have been emptied before God in the first four Beatitudes, realizing what we lack. We must go towards dependence upon God, and a soul that depends upon God looks and lives a certain way. And now he's going to lead us down a path to say, here's what this looks like to live a life of dependence upon God. And here, before we dive into the detail of the Beatitude itself, I want to remind us of something very, very important, just very in general about the nature of the Christian life. This might seem complicated, but in and of itself, it's quite simple. This very important principle in the Christian life is this, that a Christian must be something before they do something. The Christian life is first focused on being before it's focused on doing the fancy way to say that would be the Christian life is focused on ontology rather than economy. But the fancy way is not always helpful. Jesus cares about who you are before he cares about what you do. What does that mean? There are many people who think that doing Christian actions is what makes them a Christian. That what I do in terms of Christian actions makes me a Christian. They would place Christian doing before Christian being, and they would say, for example, I am a Christian because of what I do. When the Bible teaches that Christian actions are, first of all, the outcome of the reality that I am a Christian, Christian being comes before Christian doing. We cannot say, I try to live as a Christian, therefore I am a Christian. We should say, rather, I am a Christian. Therefore, I live as a Christian. Does that make sense? Christian being precedes Christian doing. Why does that matter so much? It matters because the Christian life is not something just on the surface of your life and not just a side dish on the platter of your existence. Not at all. And that's exactly actually what Mick was preaching about two weeks ago, that the Christian is someone in whom a radical change has taken place, a rebirth where we are given a new nature, we are made a new creature, and from that spiritual change of my inner nature, my thoughts and actions work themselves out of what is first a spiritual reality within. Therefore, our lives that we live are an expression of who we really are. That's very important. 
And if we misunderstand that, then we will approach the Beatitudes as a checklist of things to just kind of do so that we can just be instead of realizing that Jesus first calls us to be and then do. Now, all that to say, when the Lord Jesus speaks to us in the Beatitudes, it forces you to take a hard look at who am I? Who am I on the basis of what I do? How does my actions reflect who I really am? And we find here the focus on the question that we should be asking ourselves is in verse 7. And that question is simply, am I merciful? Does my doing reflect a being of a reality that I am a Christian believer who is merciful? So we want to ask this question. What is, what is Jesus talking about here in verse 7? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And in order to ask that question, we have to know what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about mercy in the first place. So what is mercy? And, uh, you know, Webster's definition isn't good enough because what does Jesus mean when he speaks of mercy? What is the kind of mercy that Jesus is speaking about? Let's first of all realize that mercy is not just kindness. Mercy includes kindness, but it is more than kindness to be sure. Mercy is not the same thing as grace. Uh, For example, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, grace, mercy, and peace to you. Grace and mercy are, are different things. They're related to be sure, but they are not the same thing. So what is mercy? Mercy is focused on seeing the reality and consequences of sin and being moved to act. Mercy is seeing the reality and consequences of sin and being moved to act. So mercy is related to sin in the spiritual sense of understanding what Jesus is talking about here. And mercy is moved to do something. Mercy is the action. Mercy is not just a feeling. The feeling is what we would call pity. And oftentimes I understand that people use the word pity only in a negative sense, but it's possible to have positive pity, to look upon someone and feel concern and feel compassion. That's pity. But mercy is not just the feeling. Mercy is when pity is moved into action to do. The feeling of pity moves us to act mercifully and relieve circumstances and consequences that sin places people under. So given that definition, maybe we should have started here. It makes me think of Forrest Gump, right? What did mama say? Stupid is what stupid does. If it's helpful to you, mercy is what mercy does because there was always a doing in mercy. Now, the best illustration of this, of course, is given by Jesus himself in the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. Now, if you want to flip there and glance at it, you certainly can. But just to summarize it, Jesus is explaining a very important picture here when we find in the illustration of the Good Samaritan that a certain man has been overcome by robbers and then left in the side of the road in a ditch. And two men pass by that wounded man in the ditch. And those two men are a priest and a Levite. And they don't do anything for the sake of that man. They might have felt pity for him. 
They might have looked upon him and said, wow, that's terrible. But the point is that they didn't do anything. And the final man that passes by, who has the parable named after him, a Samaritan man, goes across the road, dresses the wounds of that man, and then takes that man with him along the road, and then financially provides for his care until he can return to see how he is doing. The, the priest and the Levite do nothing. The Samaritan acts. And at the end of the parable... In Luke chapter 10, Jesus asked this question, which one of these men was a true neighbor? And, and the answer, of course, is that the Samaritan is, but the answer actually comes, the correct answer comes when it says that the true neighbor was the one who had mercy upon the man on the side of the road. Showing us that mercy acts. We have this picture of mercy in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And as we glance over that, and if you're looking at that or if we consider it, there are at least two very important things that we should learn about what Jesus is talking about in the action of showing mercy from the Good Samaritan parable. And first of all, uh, we understand that mercy seeks to relieve consequences of sin and suffering. Mercy acts to bring relief. The Samaritan took responsibility for the injured man. He did everything he could to provide healing and restoration for the man that was in the ditch. Now, think about this. The Samaritan didn't chase down the robbers. The Samaritan did not chase down the ones who inflicted the pain upon the man in the ditch. And the Samaritan also didn't stand idly by complaining about the systemic issues in the society that create a scenario in which people could uh, rob a person and leave him in the ditch. Instead, he simply acts upon the immediate need. Sometimes we complicate this. The simple point is that mercy acts upon the most immediate need. That's not to say, of course, that there isn't a place for seeking justice should somebody chase down the robbers and bring them to account for their actions? Yes, but is that the most immediate need? No. Is there a place for social circumstances and concern over social issues that promote crime and the flourishing of uh, criminals? Is that a problem? Yes. But that's not the most immediate need either. Justice and social concern are not the most immediate things. Those aren't necessarily mercy in this illustration. Mercy is crossing the road, getting in the ditch, pulling the man out and doing everything to care for him and restore his dignity. In that particular illustration of the Good Samaritan, this man has been affected by the sins of other people. And that's one way of showing an illustration of mercy. But what if that man was in the ditch by circumstances of his own causing completely? What if being in the ditch was his fault what if his own sins brought him there? Would the, the treatment have changed? I think what mercy is showing us is that whether someone is in a circumstance on the consequences of their own sins or the sins of others, in the exact case of the Good Samaritan, mercy still acts to care, to relieve the consequences of sin, whether they are the personal consequences of a personal sin or the consequences of someone else's sin. Mercy still acts. The parable of the Good Samaritan, I think, poses us a question that are we the kind of person that's always looking for a reason to kind of pass by? 
with kind of a slant-eyed look wondering what happened there that brought him to that ditch. What happened there? So it teaches us, first of all, that mercy acts to relieve the consequences of sin, but it also teaches us that mercy does not try to hide behind unbiblical excuses to not extend mercy. Maybe the priest and the Levite were walking by on a Saturday and they didn't want to profane the Sabbath by getting into the ditch, which would be, of course, the wrong application of the Sabbath. But, or maybe they thought the man was dead and they didn't want to become ritually unclean by touching a dead person. Regardless, these two men didn't want to be inconvenienced by the person who stood in need. Now, if you want to give a lesser example, perhaps, which would be better? To get to church on time and pass by the stranded motorist who's trying to change their tire, or to show up a little bit late having stopped to lend aid. Now that circumstance doesn't factor in the consequences of sin perhaps, but it's just a question of what is more important to you? The appearance of your personal righteousness by being at church, you know, every day, on time, all the time, or is it more important to, in mercy, extend a hand of need? Now, Oftentimes, we try to underplay the significance of mercy by assuming, well, that's for the best kinds of Christians, right? The best kinds of Christians are merciful. And I'm, you know, I'm like a B-team Christian. I do mercy sometimes, but there are those people who, they're really merciful and they're the best kinds of Christians. But actually, Jesus is saying that mercy is not an uh, optional extra. It's not for the promotion of the best kinds of Christians. It is a requirement for all kinds of Christians as we see that God cares very much about mercy. Jesus cites Hosea 6 when he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the fact that God requires us to love mercy. But here's where it gets complicated. Uh, We should take the illustration of the Good Samaritan to another level. Not that Jesus is an incomplete teacher by any means, but as it relates to this Beatitude, what about, what about when this illustration is far too impersonable? What about when you realize that the person who is in the ditch is that person in your life, right? The one who is guilty of the greatest offenses, the one who is uniquely responsible for the things that have wounded you since childhood, whatever. The person in the ditch is that person in your life who has wounded you, harmed you, sinned against you in some way. They are the person that you have in mind when you pray, forgive me my debts as I forgive my debtors, accept him. Right? When it is in your power to pity and be merciful to your enemies, do you? Do their sins against you move you to have compassion upon them and bless them? Or do they move you to curse them? Jesus speaks this word in Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful, and simultaneously asks you, are you merciful to your enemy? Are you merciful to the one who has sinned against you? Now, aren't you glad that Jesus, who is God himself and therefore the one who is always the one sinned against, aren't you glad that he is full of mercy when you are not? Because maybe sometimes you are able to be merciful and maybe you're sometimes not. 
But Jesus always is. Jesus is the one who it is said, he will not break a bruised reed. And in his mercy, he sees our sins and he looks upon us with kindness and prays, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing and gives himself in sacrifice to accomplish our forgiveness. And when you consider Jesus's words, blessed are the merciful, does your heart turn against this and dismiss that by saying, well, easy for Jesus, he's God. It's easy for Jesus to be merciful. Do you find in Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful, are you looking for a loophole to not extend mercy to that person or whomever? Well, maybe we need to know what Jesus means in the second half of the Beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, Jesus says, for they shall receive mercy. Now, what is, how should we understand that? Because seemingly on the surface, it's very complicated as if to suggest that, that God's mercy towards me is removed if I am not merciful. Does it mean that if I am merciful toward others, that God is obligated to be merciful to me? Do I put God in my debt by being incredibly merciful and therefore God must show me spiritual mercy because I've been personally merciful toward other people? No. Jesus is not saying that the cause of our receiving mercy from God will be the fact that we are merciful. You don't make God show you mercy because you've been merciful enough to other people. Your mercy toward others is not the cause of God being merciful to you. Instead, this means that being merciful toward other people is the outworking natural reality of having received the mercy of Jesus. And being his disciple and walking in his ways and experiencing the grace of God, that should move us to show mercy toward other people because we have received infinite mercy from God and therefore we show mercy towards other people. If we are not merciful, then our claim to receive Christ's mercy falls on its face. That's what Jesus is saying. And if we do not show mercy to others and claim to have received Christ's mercy for ourselves, Jesus is saying very sternly, you should not expect to receive it on the last day. That's very serious. We're told that if I am a Christian, I shall show mercy. And when we don't want to show mercy by our own fallen nature, kindness, grace, forgiveness, and mercy are not natural qualities to our Adamic flesh. We are born in Adam and born in sin, and kindness and mercy are not natural to us. That's why we must be born anew through faith in Christ, so that having received it, we will show it. But the receiving is the priority and comes before the showing. But the showing proves the receiving. Do you see how these relate? Now, if that's true of me, if I'm a Christian, I will be merciful, is what Jesus is saying very simply. And I won't be like another example that he gives in the scriptures in Matthew 18. He gives that parable of the unforgiving servant. This servant who goes to his master and is forgiven a debt of 10,000 and then turns around and requires payment on the debt of a fellow servant of what, like a penny. 
He is forgiven 10,000 times and then demands from another a penny and is brought back to his master having been forced to come to face with the reality of you don't understand what you've been forgiven. You don't understand. I must be by the power of the Spirit dwelling within me one who is merciful. Jesus is asking you, Christian, are you merciful? What it looks like, it looks like this. Showing mercy is not extended on the basis of merit. We don't ask the question of somebody, what have you done to deserve my mercy? When someone is placed, perhaps in your debt, you don't say to them, how have you earned my mercy? Mercy is not earned. Mercy is also not given on the basis of transaction, meaning I'll show you mercy so long as you promise to do something for me in return. Mercy is not transactional in that sense. Mercy is not extended on the basis of self-exaltation, meaning if your motivation to show mercy is for you to be known as an incredibly merciful person and exalted in your mercy, that's also a misappropriation. But true Christian mercy is extended and shown in the life of a believer to others, though it is not deserved, with no expectation of repayment. Why? Because God has shown me infinite mercy in Jesus Christ, and I want him to be exalted in my life by showing mercy without strings attached. And should we just say how hard that is at times? But the point is that through the power of the Spirit of God living in you, it can be done. And doing so honors Jesus. And here's the finish of the illustration from Corey. Do you remember the man approached him, the former prison guard? She said his hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had spoken so often to the people of the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me and I remembered his sins. And then she says this. But Jesus Christ has died for this man. What more should I ask of him? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand, but I still could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I can't forgive this man. Give me your forgiveness. And as I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this man that overwhelmed me. And Jesus is asking you, are you likewise merciful? To those who have sinned against you, to those who cannot repay you, to those who do not plan to exalt you as a result of receiving your mercy, are you merciful so that the name of Jesus would be exalted? And let me just speak very tenderly, especially to those of us who are inclined to say, but, but, but you don't know X, Y, and Z situation or circumstance. There is no offense, dear friend, perpetrated against you that is not greater than the offense that all humanity perpetrates against the Almighty God. And in His infinite mercy, He has extended it freely in Jesus, 
And so we who are the followers of Jesus are likewise called to do the same. Don't mistake what Jesus is saying here. It's not possible for you to kind of excuse your way out and say, well, I'm just really selfish, so I struggle with this, and I should try to improve a little bit. No, actually, not at all. When in reality, Jesus is saying to not be merciful is to be yourself a stranger to the gospel, a stranger to the grace of God, and therefore a stranger to God's kingdom. Are you merciful? We ought to be those who pray, Lord, have mercy upon me and help me to be so moved by your mercy that I likewise am moved to mercy. Let us pray. Oh, Lord God, we hear in your word this call to have mercy. And still, Lord, we confess that we struggle with this. And so I pray that by your spirit, you would search our hearts. Lord, search our hearts in the most uncomfortable of places to shine the light of your word into those corners that we have so long kept hidden. We pray, Lord, that by your spirit, you would set us free to extend mercy to all and that having received your free mercy in Jesus Christ, we might be those who are ourselves merciful for the sake of Christ. And so, Lord, look upon us and be gracious, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.